We are starting a new series tonight. It is called Revealed in Red. There are things that Jesus said um, that reveal who he is. And because it reveals who he is, it reveals who we are. So for the next four weeks, we're going to take a look at four things that Jesus said that reveals a lot about him and a lot about us. So we're starting a new series called Revealed in Red. Now, uh, tonight, I want to talk to you about a very important question. The, maybe the most important question you'll ever be asked. And we're accustomed to asking questions. Sometimes we ask questions to learn. For example, if you don't know how to whistle, but you hear someone whistle, you hear him go, you know what song that is from? Whistle while you work. Or whatever, whatever. Okay, so you would ask someone, hey, I don't know how to whistle. Would you please teach me how to whistle? Question mark. Sometimes we ask questions in like a teaching moment. For example, your parents tell you to be home by 10 p.m. You're not home by 10 p.m., you're home by 10.30 p.m. What is the first question your parents ask you, not because you don't know, but as a teaching opportunity? Do you know what time it is? As if you got home at 10.30 and you're going to be like, what, it's like a quarter after 8. I'm, I'm so, oh my goodness, it's 10.30, mom, dad. It's a teaching moment. Sometimes we ask questions for affirmation. Guys, you get this. When that girlfriend or girl that's a friend comes to you and says, hey, does this outfit make me look fat? Then we know the answer, right? I mean, I've never met a guy with a girlfriend that didn't know the answer to this question. The answer to the question is, no, <laughs> no, baby. And it's always followed up with, I've never seen anybody wear that outfit better. Now, let's change our plans. Let's not go to the park. Let's go to the movies. But, man, you look great in that. These questions, we ask them. They're asked of us. They're important to us. Jesus is about to ask a question to some people. I think it's the most important question that could possibly be asked. Because the answer to this question will determine your eternity. He's about to ask the question, who am I? Who am I to you? Who would you say that Jesus is? If you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 18. That's where we're going to be tonight in our study. Who do you say he is? We're going to take a look at a story that's almost like a shifting point in the entire Bible. Up to this point, Jesus has been somewhat um, impossible to grab. He hasn't really been overly vulnerable. Uh, up to this point in the entire Bible, there's been times when God's been somewhat approachable. Whenever he would be on Mount Sinai in that, in that tower, in that flame that certain people couldn't approach God where he was when, when Moses would meet with God in the, in the tent. Certain people couldn't go where he was. We're at like this shifting point in this book of John where things change. Where Jesus is about to become very, very, very vulnerable. And it's at this moment we're going to find out how two people respond. And the responses couldn't be more drastic from each other. So John chapter 18 Verses 1 through 14, we're going to read together, and it says this. When he had finished praying, talking about Jesus, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. 
On the other side, there was an olive grove, and, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Jesus, uh, excuse me, Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servants, uh, cutting his ear off, his right ear off. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Lord has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commanders and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. We have two very, very different people here in Judas and Peter. I mean, couldn't be more different. And they're given to us at this pinnacle moment, this, this shift in the scriptures where Jesus is about to become very, very vulnerable. Now, Judas was a disciple. He was known as one of the 12, one of the inner core, one of those associated with Christ. If anybody knew who G uh, Judas was in this time, he was identified with Christ to be a Christ follower. In fact, as he was one of the 12 disciples and he was traveling with Jesus, he was in charge of the bag of money. He handled all of the disciples' finances. Now, the Bible's pretty clear when it gives us a picture of what Judas was really like. Judas, throughout the scriptures, is a thief. He keeps taking money from what's given to Jesus from the people, and he keeps using it for his own good. When we get several times that we see in scripture where he'll kind of dip his hand into the money bag, take some money out, put it in his own pocket, and then tell people what the new amount was so they wouldn't know any money was missing. I mean, there was a time this lady wanted to come up and anoint Jesus' feet with oil and just pour out tears of hope and love and thankfulness to Christ. And, and Judas was the one that was like, do you know how much that perfume is worth? Do you know how much that oil is worth? We could have sold that and made a fortune. We got to stop her right, right, right now. If we were to ask the question of Judas, who is Jesus to you? Judas, who, who is Jesus to you? You saw all of his miracles. You heard all of his predictions. You heard him say all of these statements that identified him as deity. But Judas, who would you say Jesus really is? Judas would say, he's just another guy. He's just another person. He's just another man. He's a nobody. You see, Judas was the one that betrayed Jesus Christ for 30 pieces of silver. Judas was the one that would say, man, he's a good guy. He's fun to hang out with, but if you pay me the right price, I'll ditch him. I'll turn him over to you. I'll betray this guy if you pay me just enough. And so Judas did. 
And Judas convinced other people that Jesus was a nobody. And then, listen, the crazy thing is this story is about two disciples who followed Jesus Christ and whose identity for three years was with Jesus Christ. Judas convinced other people that Jesus was a nobody. Judas convinced the chief priests. He convinced the, the Roman cohort, which is like a bunch of tough soldiers, big guys, carry heavy spears, big shields, probably a big helmet with a big feather coming out the top. I mean, tough guys, used to war, used to combat. And he told them, hey, this Jesus guy, we can take him. Okay, I, I know where they hang out. I know Jesus' habits. I know Jesus' patterns. I know that if enough of us come, we can capture this guy, Jesus. We can put him in chains, and we can place on his head a crown. Because to Judas, this was all Jesus was worthy of. To Judas, Jesus was just another man. In the, in the eyes of the law, just a criminal. Just someone he could sell, make some money off. It was just a get-rich scheme. He was a get-popular-quick scheme. To Judas, Jesus was nobody. And to Judas, Jesus was nothing. But Jesus underestimated Judas. Or excuse me, Judas underestimated Jesus. Which happens. Colin Smith was in a horrible, horrible accident eight years ago. Eight years ago. In Asheboro, North Carolina. He was in such a bad accident that he lost a lot of his faculties to think. He lost a lot of his, his, his complete ability to walk and to get around on his own. And his family didn't know what to do. They didn't make a whole lot of money, and so they couldn't afford in-home care for him while both the mom and, and the father worked. But they attended Asheboro Baptist Church in North Carolina. And there was a couple there, an elderly couple there, that heard their story, heard what was going on. Named Ernest and Catherine Green. And Ernest really felt, you know, led by the Lord, like, man, I need to get involved in this situation for Colin. Because the doctors had told Colin's family, hey, he's a young man, 14 years old. He'll probably never be able to go back to high school again. He will probably never get a high school degree in college. Just forget about it. There, there is such a slim chance I wouldn't get his hopes up. There's no way he's going to go. But Ernest was like, man, I don't know. I think God has something better for his life. I think everyone's underestimating him. I think there's something going on here. So Ernest approached the family of Colin Smith. They didn't even know each other. Ernest goes up to him and says, hey, listen, I've heard what's going on. I want to get involved. I want to help out. I think the doctors could be wrong. Um, can I take care of your son? And so the family's like, you know, we don't have any other options. Okay, so Ernest goes and gets training and rehabilitation. And then he starts showing up. Monday morning, 7 a.m., Tuesday morning, 7 a.m., Wednesday morning, 7 a.m., Thursday morning, 7 a.m., Friday morning, 7 a.m., trying to help Colin rehabilitate, get his mind back and get what parts of his body that work could work. And Ernest had to wake him up and get him out of bed every day, help him out of bed. He had to actually put him into the shower and, and actually wash him. He had to feed him most mornings, certainly make breakfast for him. And every day, he would say, God's not done with you yet. Everyone's underestimating you. God's not done with you yet. Fast forward four years, Colin graduated from high school. And he graduated from high school 
with good enough grades to where he wanted to go to college. This young man, the doctor said, his, his life is, is kind of over. He's just going to have to stay at home. He, he can't do a whole lot in life. This, this accident has left him mentally challenged you know, too much and physically unable to really perform in society. So he graduates from high school and Colin says, hey, hey I want to go to college. So he enrolls in High Point University in North Carolina. And he's accepted, but he can't go alone. He still can't make it alone. And his parents still can't afford an in-home sitter to take him and to pick him up and to help him through his classes and to take notes in class because he had a hard time writing. So Ernest says, hey, I've still got some time. The Lord is still telling me he's not done with this young man yet. People are underestimating him. And so Ernest goes to college every day with Colin. And just last May, a guy graduates from college, Colin does. And he's grown to such a degree in his mind and his body. I mean, he's still in a wheelchair, but now he actually serves as an assistant coach on the basketball team for High Point University. And now he can afford through what he makes and what the family can provide. He actually has a certified nursing assistant that assists him. Now, the cool thing was on graduation day, Colin walked by, or really rode by, and got his degree handed to him. And then the school did something special for Ernest. They said, Ernest, come on up here. And Ernest is kind of in the back, makes his way to the front. And they say, you know what? We see what you've done. We see how you've poured in this young man life. When everybody underestimated him, you said there's still something about him that's special and unique. We're going to give you an honorary degree in humanities. And Ernest was like, I never saw it coming. I just saw this young man that everyone said was no good and underestimated, but there was something special about him. Judas underestimated Christ and who he was. It seems like the whole time he was with Christ, it, it never really got from his head down to his heart. Because if you were to ask Judas about all his experiences he had with Christ, they were real. I mean, he was there when Jesus fed 5,000. He was there when Jesus walked on water. He was there when Lazarus was raised from the dead. He was there when Jesus turned water into wine. I mean, go back and listen to the Grave Robber series that we just had and listen to all these amazing miracles, amazing things that Jesus did. But somehow Judas just missed it. And do you know why he missed it? Because he was so focused on himself, he never focused for a moment on who Christ really is. And my deepest fear for all of you students tonight is that in this world of distractions that you have with your cell phones, and I see even some of you, can't, you know, can't even make it through a message without looking at your cell phone, checking your emails, checking your texts, checking your likes on Instagram. In this world of distractions, you're going to come to live, you're going to come to Bible study, you're going to hear everything about Christ, but you're never going to stop and pause and focus and ask yourself the most important question you possibly could. Who is Jesus Christ to you? Because how you identify Jesus here on earth is how you'll be identified in heaven. Judas, Judas missed it. All of his life to Judas. Jesus, just a commoner, just a criminal. Just worthy of a set of crowns. In fact, he got a whole mob and crowd together just to put Jesus in chains and shekels. So you may be wondering, who is Jesus? It's an interesting passage that he has here, the way that he responds to the crowd when he says, uh, who are you looking for? And so, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. 
What's interesting about this is there's a pattern in Scripture from Jesus that traces all the way back to the Old Testament. That when someone would use this statement, I am, it projected deity. Let's rewind. Do you remember when Moses was commissioned by God to go to the Pharaoh in Egypt and say, let my people go? And he asks the burning bush, asks God who's in this burning bush. He says, uh, who should I say is sending me? And God says, tell them I am who I am is sending you. Now, no one else in the scripture is really able to lose the fact that they're deity. No one else even has the opportunity to do so because there's no fully God, fully man here on earth yet. There's no Jesus. But when Jesus is here on earth, he's constantly using that I am statement and is driving people nuts. And the reason is because the I am statement that he just used here is reserved only for God and God alone. So when Jesus is saying things like you saw in that video, I'm the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the bright and morning star. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then probably the most obvious one, when the leaders, these Pharisees, were asking Jesus, who are you? Are you greater than Abraham? And he says this in the Bible. He says, before Abraham was, I am projecting his deity, telling people that I am God, fully God, fully man. It's not God up there, me down here doing his work. It's God's up there, God's all in here, all in me, all dressed in humanity. I am fully God and fully man. But Jesus did other things that projected his deity. But they can be so easy to miss. Not only did he make those statements like I am, not only did he have those miracles that we cover a lot of in the Grave Robber series, he also had these predictions that came true. This shift in the book of John, it's not really a surprise. You see, Jesus had actually predicted this moment was going to happen. This, this specific moment in time was going to happen. If you go back and read John chapter 13, just a couple days before we get to this climactic moment, or Jesus says four things are going to happen very, very soon. He says, I'm going to be handed over to the Israel nation. I'm going to, it happened. I'm going to be betrayed by one of you, Judas, it happened. I'm going to be abandoned by all of you. You're all going to leave me when I get arrested. It happens. He said, I'm going to die. I'm going to offer my life for the sins of the world. It happened. Jesus is making it so clear, the gospel writers make it so clear that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. They take those three ways to pound it into our thick heads and our coarse hearts. Jesus Christ is God. Judas missed it, but Peter didn't. Here's how Peter responds to the question, who is Jesus to you, Lord? Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. Did you expect that? Right? Probably not. Okay, so so here's what we learned from Peter. We learned a couple things. First, we learned that Peter's all in. 
I mean, Peter doesn't fully understand what's going on. It's still a mystery to us. Fully God, fully man dies from the sins of the world, resurrection three days later. But Peter's all in. And I don't want to romanticize it. I mean, the fact is, Peter struck the high priest servant who's probably like 14 and unarmed. And so when the crowd's all there and Peter's like, stand back, Jesus, I'll save you. You know, and he goes for the weakest link. Still, Peter was all in. Peter had seen the truth, experienced the truth, accepted the truth. Who is Jesus to Peter? He was the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That's who he was to Peter. This is the crown for a king. It's a crown of royalty. It's a crown of splendor. Whoever wears this crown has all authority and all right to make any decision that they want to. Jesus was here today. Judas and Peter were standing behind these crowns. They had to hand a crown to Christ based on who they said he was. The crown that Judas would pass would be full of thorns to say, you're just a common man. You're a nobody. The crown that Peter would pass would be to say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. the outcome of passing those two different ones is very different. For a person that says that Jesus Christ was just a common man, a criminal, he deserved what he got, he was a nobody, he was forgotten. The Bible is very clear that it says that you will never have a relationship with God. And one day when you die, you will go to hell, an eternal place of separation from God. But the Bible is very clear that the person that places their faith and trust in God, the person that would raise that crown and say, you are my king, you are my Lord. Your name is written in a book in heaven that records those who have new life, a new beginning. And it all comes from the question, who is Jesus to you? This passage teaches us clearly that you can come here all the time and still miss it still have missed it but I hope that you're like Peter and that you got it or if tonight you would say I've missed it for so long I've heard everything I've experienced everything but I've never given my life to Christ tonight's the night you can do that so here's what I want to do I want every head to bow every eye to close if you want to have a relationship with Christ tonight if you want to have a relationship with Christ tonight, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And you can repeat this quietly in your heart after me. Father, please forgive me. You are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. You died for me. You rose for me. Forgive me. In Jesus' name I pray. Without anybody looking around, if you prayed that for the first time, you'd say, I, Kyle, I prayed that. I asked Christ into my heart. I want to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. On the count of three, I want you to stand up, okay? On the count of three, I want you to stand up. One. Two. If you prayed that for the first time, I want you to stand up when I say, Three, stand up, stand up. If you pray that for the first time, stand up. I see you. I see you. Keep standing. Stay standing up. Don't sit back down. 
don't sit back down. Maybe you missed that opportunity. You wish you stood up. I see you. Stay standing. And you're begging for me to say stand again. Here it is. Stand again. Stand again. If you missed it, stand up right now. Those who are standing, look at me. Just those who are standing. I'm so proud of y'all. It's a new day. It's a new beginning. It's a new life in relationship you have with God because of Jesus Christ. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a friend that you came with, and I want you to go back to John Keith back there, a friend of mine, okay? Grab a friend that you came with. He's going to talk with you more about what it means to follow Christ, okay? Go ahead and head out now. Go ahead and walk to him now. Go ahead. Go ahead. Don't miss it because there's still time. There's still an opportunity. There's still an invitation for you to follow Christ. You can stand up right now and go join those other ones who are raising their flags for Christ. You can go right now. You can go right now. Anybody else? Anybody else? Y'all can look at me. There's one final thing I want to talk to you about from the scripture before we close. I think it's an important thing for Christians to know and to realize it comes straight out of this scripture. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting his right ear off. The servant's name was Malchus. The only rebuke in this scripture is at a follower of Jesus Christ, a true follower of Jesus Christ. I want you to realize that, okay? The only rebuke in this entire passage of scripture is directed to a true follower of Jesus Christ who reacted to someone in such a way that he disappointed Jesus. Disappointed Jesus. You see, when people are antagonistic against you and your faith, when people stand up and say, why do you believe in Christ? Didn't that guy die? Isn't he dead? You're wasting your time. Jesus is fake. Jesus is a phony. Jesus is a nobody. You're wasting your time. You're living your life in vain. Your silly spiritual times where you worship and praise God, no one's listening. No one's responding. When you pray, no one's listening to you. No one cares. A lot of our responses want to be like Peter. We take out the sword and we attack. We try and get revenge. We try and get back. We try and spread the rumors and ruin their reputation like they're trying to ruin ours. But the Bible doesn't allow us to do that. Jesus reprimands Peter for that kind of behavior. If you're going to be identified with Christ, I want to make one thing clear. Just because you're standing for Christ doesn't mean you're standing the right way. You have to be very, very, very careful how you stand with Christ so that you don't, you're not found standing against Christ and what he's trying to do. So what the Bible teaches us is this. Jesus reprimands Peter and says, hey, that's not the way my message is going to be spread. This isn't ISIS. We don't give you a choice, either convert or die. The way my message is going to be spread is through grace and through love. So Jesus actually bends down, picks up the right ear of Malchus, attaches it back, and then hands himself over and says the gospel is going to be spread through peace and through love and through hope and through joy. 
When you're identified with Christ, it should change your view of other people. And even especially those who you would label as enemies. We are not given the right to respond any way that we want. We are mandated by Jesus towards those who antagonize us, make fun of us, to extend more love than we ever have before, more grace than we ever had before, more hope and mercy than we ever have before. You see, there was a time when this crown was mine. Y'all, I'm the common man. Full of sin, shame, and grief. And, and Jesus took that. He took off his crown of glory. take my crown of thorns so he could die on the cross for my sins and for yours too and that's if you ask me who Jesus is to me he is my king of kings and lord of lords he is my only hope in a dark world, and that's why he is the light. He's the only thing that will nourish my soul, and that is why he is my bread. Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? I pray that you'll answer that question tonight. I really do pray that you'll answer that question tonight. Father,